0: the italian wine podcast i'm cynthia chaplin and this is voices every wednesday i will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals discussing issues in diversity equity and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine if you enjoy the show please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods hello and welcome to voices i'm cynthia chaplin and today i am delighted to welcome alice ochayo Alice hails from the Acholi people of South Sudan, but she grew up in northern Uganda and moved to the US when she was 12. Alice studied hospitality management and eco gastronomy at the University of New Hampshire, and then she went on to work her way up through the wine industry with jobs at several prestigious wine shops across the greater Boston area for a couple of years, uh, finishing up with a four to five year sort of stint as a fine wine consultant. And then in January 2022, she bravely started The Wine Linguist, which is a super exciting new adventure, and I really want to talk to Alice about that. So welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Cynthia. <laughs> great pleasure. Great pleasure. So I have got to ask you, what got you into the wine industry? You know, you've you've you know, come from this really outside-the-box background, and I want to know where your wine passion sprang up from. Oh, man. You know, i it's like every time someone asks me this question, I never know. Like, there is no short answer to it. So if if you have a couple of minutes, I would just give you a little little story of how it all came to be or where I am now. You go for it. This is what we want to hear. (laughs) Awesome. So I would say definitely started out in college. um, And as you mentioned, I studied hospitality and eco gastronomy. And honestly, eco-gastronomy was and has been sort of the foundation of how I am in terms of when it comes to food. And so they are... I'm going to stop you right there. And for I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are going to say, what the heck is eco-gastronomy? <laughs> yes, sure. So eco-gastronomy is essentially the ecology of food. And it's guided by the motto of slow food. Um, you've heard slow food movement. Absolutely. Right? So the good, clean, and fair. Right. You're in Italy. So yes. <laughs> It originated in Bra, uh, in uh, Piedmont region, with Carlo Petrini. And so uh, eco-gastronomy had a tie to Carlo Petrini. And so we were, uh, for a semester, we went to study abroad. So I studied in Bra. In, um, I'm so jealous. <laughs> in Piedmont. <laughs> it, was, it was fun, right? And so, you know, from there, I really fell in love with food. I didn't... You know, as an African I I feel like I never I never looked at food the way I do now because it was natural, right? We were farmers and we had access to good food and, and it wasn't until I came to the US and that access wouldn't was no longer there, you know, fruits and vegetables. Uh, first they were different from what I grew up with but also that they were not as uh, easily accessible and so I know it's crazy isn't it you know supposedly the wealthiest country in the world and you can't get fresh stuff exactly and I found that really weird and so through studying with ecoastronomy I actually became more appreciative of of food and with that also you know the slow food foundation you really think about the people behind food so the land stewards so those are farmers your gardeners the cooks people who I think really (laughs) keep us grounded and I just it I resonated because I looked at my own people and I thought my gosh like that's who we were you know that's who we are and so that had a close I think a very close place to my heart and so I come back from Italy and I'm just thinking okay I want to open a small bistro And I want to cook everything in a wood-fired oven and source it from local farmers. And it will be focused on seasonal ingredients, right? So tiny, tiny dream there, tiny, tiny dream. And I come back and I tend to get very laser focused on my dreams, right? So I just, that's what I will focus on. And so I came back and I knew that I needed to learn how to use a wood-fired oven. Were you still in New Hampshire at this (laughs) point? I was still in New Hampshire. That's right, because I can't. I can't imagine that there are like hundreds of wood-fired ovens around in New Hampshire. No, absolutely not. You're right. So I found an apprenticeship in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, in the Poconos, where they were looking for a bread baker's apprentice to bake bread in a wood-fired oven. And I forgot everything else about that title and only saw wood-fired oven. This is so niche. I love it. <laughs> that's what I'm coming to learn. And so I went out. I moved to Pennsylvania, like literally middle of nowhere, didn't know anybody in the Poconos. And I, I was a bread apprentice for six grueling months. <laughs> and I learned how to use a wood-fired oven. But what ended up happening was that I fell in love with bread. <laughs> You know, it's funny because that's the great thing to fall in love with. You know, it's really, you know, it's it's cliche to say it is a staple. But, you know, bread is a very complicated thing. It is. It is and it isn't, though. Exactly. Yeah. So I fell in love with bread, specifically sourdough bread. So that is, you know, that is a skill that I'm trained in. And so when I was done with my apprenticeship and it was, oh, right, I want to go somewhere and bake bread in a wood-fired oven, but I don't want to do it in the middle of nowhere. Well, yeah, a social life would be good. Exactly. And so I'm thinking about where to go. And it was the places around me, the states around me were like Vermont and Maine. And I love both of those places, but I they were still too far away from where the energy I needed to be around. And so Boston was the next closest thing. And they didn't have wood-fired oven. I don't think it's even really legal to have that in the city, just fire hazard. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, probably. Like a proper wood fire oven. I I don't think you could have that. But I ended up applying to work at um, a bakery, a very well-known bakery actually here in Boston. It's been there for nearly 40 years at this point. And I was a bread Baker there for two and a half years, but I got tired at like 23, going 24. I was like, my body is tired and I'm this young, right? Well, I guess you must have been getting up like in the middle of the night. 2 a.m. Yeah, to make bread, of course. I have to tell you, I knew the name of your bakery. I used to live in Boston and that was part of how I found you because somewhere, something I read about you said the name of the bakery. I think we need to to say the name of the bakery, Alice. Oh, it's, it's Clear Flower. Exactly. I'm more than happy to say the name. I, I love them. they since been, they've taken a new owner, but yes, a great bakery. We've got to give them a little plug. They, they were a great bakery when I was living there, and that was definitely 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. But they're, they're great. So I worked there and I just thought to myself, okay, I'm tired. You know, and I I need to do something else, and I I will take a pause in this. You know, come back. I thought about maybe at this point I was like I could like open my own bakery, but I just thought I'm I'm just tired, and so back to the drawing board. Okay, what do I do? Clearly, I'm not gonna open my bistro now, and <laughs> like maybe that will happen down down the road in my life. Because now you were more realistic, and you knew how hard it was. <laughs> exactly. Hey, right. Hey, you know, we're kids in high school and college, rather, I should say. So we just get to dream, but we don't know the the reality of of making those dreams happen. And so at that point, I just started to think about all the, let's say classes I took in college that I was interested in. And one of them happened to be an elective that I'd taken that was called um, International Beverage Management. And so in that course, I'm going to say 85% of the course was on wine, right? So this is how the wine gets plucked in. And I loved I loved that course. I took it um, one semester, then I studied abroad for the eco gastronomy. When I came back, I actually asked to be a TA for the class because I thought I could learn more by grading students' work, I guess. <laughs> yeah, teaching is always the best way to learn. I, I, right, because you you kind of have to know what you're doing. And so it, it's like double the learning. And so, yeah, I became a TA for the class and there was no other wine course at the university. And so this was my only way of kind of expanding my knowledge of wine at the time. And so, yeah, fast forward later, it's like, what do I do with my life now? And I thought, wine. Yes, that still plays a role in if I open a bistro later, I'm going to need to know wine. It's so right. It was an evolution. I can see this. Oh, for sure. There's a there's there's, there's a plan to this, this madness. <laughs> and so I applied to work at a fine wine shop and with just the knowledge that I had, which was super basic. But, you know, they hired me. Um, they liked my personality enough that they hired me, and then they at that time they were offering all of their employees um, paying for their WSAT um, certification course, so they paid for mine. And that's fantastic. I think a lot of people don't understand what a financial commitment that is. Absolutely, it's very expensive. It's very expensive, and if your if your job is going to support you and and take on that that. Financial outlay—it's so helpful. So I've, I've had that happen in my life too. It really is helpful. I wish that more people did it. Uh, more businesses did it, honestly, for for their employees. But uh, I'm it, hoping. I'm hoping. Me too. But yes, so that is kind of how that took off in terms of wine, and I just fell in love with wine. And after you know a couple of years of working in retail—well, actually, like one and a half years working retail—I wanted more, right? I wanted more uh, room to grow. Um, and it, the latter sort of. Had just stopped here, so I. You were at the top, basically. (laughs) I well, I, I couldn't really. Let's just say I couldn't get to the top. It was not the structure of this place wouldn't wouldn't really. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone to the top, but that's okay. So I moved on, and I had a friend who worked at a distribution company. And he was able to take my resume and put it on his boss's desk. And that's how I got into Martinetti Companies. <laughs> As, uh, Fantastic. It's all who you know. Uh, right there. Yeah. And then I worked for One Division because it's a, an umbrella company with multiple companies underneath it. And so I worked for One Division and I really wanted to go into the fine wine And the best the best one that they have in Martinetti is uh I... I might be a little biased but it's a classic wine imports right with all the classic wine. So I was there for 3 years and really loved it and learned so much. So that's that I think that's really where my love of wine got developed was working with the portfolios. Well, great place to to learn and really to sort of yeah, grow your passion. That's that's such a that's such an interesting progression and and really you know, it's not that far of a leap from bread to wine. You know, we're back in the whole biblical communion thing and bread and wine. This is an old story. You're a young person, but that's an old story. I like that. But I mean, so I mean, you've, you've had this really interesting and, and varied life already, you know, despite the fact that you are this young person. But It hasn't been easy, I know, and you've you've made it sound fun and simple, but I know you've faced a lot of challenges at work and, and on a personal level. And I've heard you describe yourself as, quote unquote, the only one. And this is such a fascinating and painful concept. Can you sort of explain to everyone listening what you mean by being the only one? You've said you got used to it and it became normal, which doesn't sound very great to me. But clearly you've taken the whole experience and the concept and flipped it into a positive um, forward motion in your life. Tell us what what that concept means and, and how did you manage to make it something positive for yourself? Yeah, sure. So I would say it, it really comes from the fact that when my family and I came to the U.S. Um, and moved to New Hampshire. From Africa to New Hampshire. This is not like this is not an easy change. Yeah, from a village, really, because, you know, coming to coming to America was it was it, it could be. You could be on another planet altogether. there was nothing that could have prepared us for what what we were coming into. and then when we got here, it was just like, well, you can't even be like, "Oh, I'm surprised that this is here or I'm surprised this is this is who's here you We just showed up, we're like, okay, this is what this is, I guess, right And so you know, we are in a in a, a new New Hampshire. it's gotten better now. The capital has a lot of um, immigrants, but you know in two thousand it was a very small demographic and so we were not even in the capital we were in a small town called henneker and uh, my sister and i literally when we showed up like the diversity percentage went up by 200 percent, right just the two of us showing up oh my god <laughs> and we covered every i mean every box you can check we we were it and so for us it's just and we didn't speak english so 100 percent culture shock oh uh, absolutely Absolutely. I, and I think that that's precisely it, right? Like, there is nothing that I will ever experience, I don't think, in my life again, that will be that shocking to me. Yeah, and I'm sure your school didn't have English as, you know, as a foreign language class or anything like that. Um, They had it for a brief moment. So because I was 12 at the time that I arrived here, they immediately put me in sixth grade. I didn't speak English. Oh, my God. I knew how to say my name. So this is how I would introduce myself. Hello my name is Alisa Chayo. That's like, that was, that was, I was like, tri- that's what I practiced was how to like introduce myself. And then if you followed up with more questions, I just looked at you blankly. I, there was nothing. And so, you know, they did try to provide us with ESL classes, but even that it's like, when it's your first time really having somebody that's from a different culture, you, they just didn't even know how to, I think, provide us with the right So I think it's gotten much better now, but back then it was really hard. And so, honestly, the first few years of my life in America was really painful um, because, you know, and this happens a lot, I think, with immigrant families, but specifically from Africa, it's like education is really important for us. And so at 12 years old, and I know we talked uh, briefly, Cynthia, you said that I was a baby, but in my culture, 12 years old is not really young, right? You know, in a few years, if... (laughs) If nothing else, I would probably have babies by then. And so it's like by 12 years old, I really am already preparing. I'm in my young adulthood. And with a huge sort of sense of responsibility, I'm guessing. Exactly. Exactly. So coming here, not speaking English, I would sit in the back of the room, so frustrated, but mostly frustrated with myself. I blamed myself for not understanding what was being taught because I knew that so much weighed on me, you know, as one of the first of my family to members to come here that it was my responsibility to get a good education so that i can then go and help my family right so it, it just was very frustrating even though now i can look back and say you know it wasn't your fault you didn't understand you literally didn't speak the language but I still in the moment i felt like i was failing them right so
1: thank you for listening to italian wine podcast from July 1st to the 31st and click the link. We thank you and back to the show.
0: But, you know... I had a great host family. they're actually uh, they've been my family we just call them Mom and Dad. <laughs> they were um, they were the family that sponsored us and took us um, under took us in as their own as the rest of my family were still back in Africa and they really provided my sister and I a stable home in order for us to go to school. Um, and learn English. So when I speak, and there's no accent in my English, it's because I grew up in an American household. <laughs> so going from zero English to learning English, you just copy everything and how everybody talks, right? But I think going back to the, the what I said about being the only one, you know, it can be painful. But honestly, when you don't know any different, you know, when I came to the US, and all I saw were the people around me, which is just like all white people, I wasn't thinking well, this doesn't look right, right? I was in a new country, someone else's country, and I took what I was seeing and and, and interacting with as that's what it is. So there's nothing we would say, well, where are other people? Where are, you know, where are other Africans? It was just, we were coming to America, we didn't know what it was, and we showed up, and that's what it was, and we accepted it as is. So being the only one in my high school, on my sports team, on my theater, you know, uh, like... it. It just was the norm. And I didn't question it so much about, you know, I, I specifically didn't really feel like there was something missing. I just said, okay, this is America then, you know? So it took a long time for me to say, whoa, like, <laughs> actually, where are other people, right? Um, but that took years. Um, and so I think I think it you can say it was painful, but I think because I accepted that I didn't know any better um, about, other parts of America, and just this is what I was sort of um I landed in I didn't know to i didn't know I was supposed to be missing something if that makes sense <laughs> and so fast forward to me being in the wine industry and not seeing any faces that resemble mine or cultures or language that resemble mine. It it's kind of like that first feeling again of coming to the country of this country being like, yeah, well, this is just what it is. Right. So I got to the wine industry and that's what it was. And I, I didn't think too much like, Oh, you don't look like everybody. and You don't speak like everybody. I just sort of jumped in was like, okay, let's learn it your way. This is your thing. Right. So that's incredible. Well, I mean, that's a pretty strong willed response to that kind of a challenge. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> probably comes from your sense of responsibility you wanted to do it and you were going to get out there and do it by god that's really it right it's just like not thinking that but i i do think that where i come from coming from from africa it, it there is a lot of emotional shield that comes with where i come from that you know it's like sure i i growing up in new hampshire i'm sure that there was racism all around me but um it's almost like sometimes if you don't know what what it looks like you don't know <laughs> you know so yeah yeah so for me it's like you know we always hear like you know sometimes you hear people say go back to your country and I I kind of joke about this where I'm like if somebody ever said that to me and maybe they did and I just didn't register but if they did I'd be like yeah uh, uh, yeah but give me a moment I will right like there's there's something really powerful about being able to say yes I know that this is not my country and I have my own That's okay like you're just pointing out facts to me right now (laughs) so I think there's something really powerful about that that's amazing that's I and that concept of I have my yeah something about being able to say I know this isn't my country and I have my own but I'm I'm still here taking part in yours that that is that's a hugely powerful message actually and I think probably has done a lot to preserve your like internal identity yes and it's one of those things no matter what room I'm in I know that I will never look like um I mean it's thank goodness it's getting better in this industry but I I'm used to not ever look <laughs> um, it took a, I mean it's still but it's given me this this shield where I know that no matter what room I'm going to walk in I'm going to be the only one and that's okay <laughs> It's, it's that's amazing, Alice. I just, I, I find that concept just really amazing and I've never heard it put that way before. And there's something there's something really strong about that philosophy. I I really I applaud you for that. It's it's amazing. I also I wanna I wanna talk about something a little more lighthearted than sure. that, but I wanna congr- <laughs> I wanna yeah. I wanna congratulate you too for starting the Wine Linguist, you know, in in twenty twenty two, in January of twenty twenty two. Very exciting and brave for you. Uh just coming out of a pandemic, you know, not too sure what's going on, economy not so great all of these different things, and you started The Wine Linguist. And I've read that you were inspired to leave your very nice, uh, fine wine consulting job because you wanted to create a project that focused on expanding wine language. Um, And I can't agree with you more. Uh, This is something that I talk about a lot. So what are your goals for The Wine Linguist? What do you hope to do, and and how are you going to get out there and do it? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, with The Wine Linguist... um, You know, obviously, over time, I've reflected on the fact that the wine language is, first off, a language that I I believe belongs to everybody because it's a language that relies on our sensory memories. But that is not something that you're taught in wine education. Um, And we can absolutely not. And I was starting mine way before you, and believe me, never heard a word about that. Right, so you know, I think for a long time, again, just taking it for what it was I, I I learned wine the way that I was being taught, and then sort of had to put aside my sensory memories. They were not relevant into the way that wine was talked about, but over time i i I just didn't feel that that was true, and I personally you know one of the one of the most beautiful things for me is interacting with people with wine in a way that when they leave, they, they feel they feel free in how they can drink wine and talk about wine in a way that makes sense for them. And so as a wine consultant um, and a wine professional, I think that it is my job to make sure that people feel comfortable in being able to experience wine in a way that makes sense to them. So that means encouraging them to, dig, to really dig into their sensory memories um, because it's there you know it just really takes us uh it takes us time to to learn to really dig into your sensory memories but the scents that you've grown up around the foods you've grown up eating they're all logged in your mind the scents are there and so you can easily find that in wine and be able to to talk about wine and enjoy it in a way that makes sense to you so i was just really Let's just say I, I was not interested in talking about wine as if I know it all, right? Wine professionals sometimes, and, you know, I point us out all the time that we have this, this thing about us where we, we think that we are supposed to tell people what to drink, how to smell wine, how, you know, what food to have with it. And I just find that such BS because it takes away from the joy of, of really sharing wine and food with people is that I I want to give you some tools, you know, and for me, the tool is to make you feel comfortable enough to... To experience it how you want to experience it. I don't ever want to tell somebody this is what you should like and smell and drink. And, you know, so you're so right that it is such BS. Absolutely, and you know, it's no one can ever know everything about wine. That's part of why I love being an, an educator and a presenter myself because there's something new to learn even for me every single day and I cherish that part of it so I I yes I have a very big struggle with those among our sector who do pretend or behave as if they know everything uh, which is also very intimidating for people who are new so exactly it keeps I think it's what's really kept this industry i mean this this culture very intimidating for for everyone is this sort of this this idea that you're supposed to know how to describe wine the word the correct words to use and I'm just like no man like this is (laughs) if you know and I think that so that sort of brings me to the point with the wine linguist where where I want to say that if we're going to, to continue to talk about wine in the exact same way right and we're just regurgitating what Like every wine professional says, we as wine professionals, we just regurgitate what we hear, whether we have experiences with those scents and aromas and bouquets or not, then the wine language stays very exclusive, very limited, and very restrictive right? So we don't go outside. And it's almost like a secret language. You need a decoder ring. If you aren't part of the club, you, you can't understand what's being said. Exactly. And so I, I just think that that also not only make it intimidating, but it, it gets boring really quickly. Absolutely. I think of it kind of like, um, are you familiar with the game Boggle? Yes. <laughs> I just imagine that like, Like imagine that the current wine language and what it's been for a long time, is just like those letters in the, in the boggle container. You just shake them around and you just try to create some sort of new something, but like, you're just, you're still limited to the letters that are in there. Exactly. (laughs) Precisely. Right. And so for me with the wine language, I, I want to expand the wine language and my, the way that I want to approach it is through global cuisine. Um, As I mentioned before, the wine language to me is a language made up of sensory experiences and what has the most sensory sort of, you know, what creates the most sensory memories? It's cuisines, right? When you think about how different cultures, the spices that they use, the herbs, the, you know, even just the plants that they've grown up around, they have themselves cataloged their own sensory memories. I absolutely love this. I just love this. And it, it, You're you're playing into my hands because I want to bring up the fact that I I know just a couple of weeks ago you were a speaker at Assemblage Symposium in Oregon um, with a lot of my favorite Oregon people, Remy Drabkin and and other people. For those of our listeners who don't know, um, Assemblage, their philosophy is to amplify the voices of women, BIPOC people, people who identify as LBGTQIA+. Um, people with disabilities and all of these people who are underrepresented in the wine industry, of whom there are still far too many, unfortunately. But your session at the symposium was called "Decolonizing the Palate." I am so jealous that I wasn't there. What was what was the concept behind this title? This the the session was described. I looked it up in the in the flyer as a critical analysis of eurocentrism of wine descriptions and rules around wine and food pairing. So tell me what you what you were talking about, fill us in what, what the problems are in this arena and why these problems exist. You touched on it about how people grow up with different foods. So tell us about decolonizing the palate. Yeah. So I think we've kind of, it's funny, like we've kind of been talking about it, but just to kind of bring it um, into this this question, decolonize the past. So if you think about the fact that the wine language is is very Eurocentric and really just focus on Western society, then that means that it excludes the global majority, right? So it's a language that's been written for specific groups of people, but it excludes a lot of other people in it. So I'll give you an example just to kind of, because it's, it's easier once I give an example. So, you know, during during the symposium, I brought up the, this point where in in the wine industry, there's this rule of thumb that says, you know, you don't pair red wine with spicy food. And I, you know, we asked the audience said, why is that? And someone said, because it elevates the heat. And I said, that's right. You don't pair red wine with spicy food, because it elevates the heat It makes whatever you are eating hotter. And Miguel just said, you know, hotter for who, right? And that's a question that we really have to think about anytime that we we look at the way that wine is described or talked about, we have to think about who the audience is. And for for a long time, the audience has never been anyone except for Western society. So in cultures and cuisines where they, they cook with with spicy, we'll say, well, spice, we'll call it that, <laughs> is that their palate is already used to heat, right? To, to spice heat. And so when you're doing that pairing, it only becomes unpleasant for societies whose palate is not does not have the tolerance for, for heat. Absolutely. I love that quote, too spicy for who? Yeah. Who's, who's to, who's to say what is too spicy? Correct. And so it's like, you know, what audience are we really talking to when, when we're coming up with these different, either um, rules of thumb. And then the other thing too, is, you know, we, we have classic pairings, right? So again, steak and and Cabernet is a classic pairing. I, I just, like that can't get any more boring for me, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have to agree with that, frankly. I'm just, I'm a, oh, so anyway. I'm an Italian wine person. So when I eat my steak, I never drink Cabernet with my steak. Good. Yeah. It's uh, I'm like, unless you don't like the meat, you just want to wash it down. Sure, do that. <laughs> but anyway, so classic pairings like that are... I mean, first and foremost, that's assuming everybody eats steak and that everybody eats it a certain way, right? Because otherwise, you're really speaking to a very small demographic who will understand what steak and red wine is like. So another uh, example of decolonizing your palate or the wine language looks like when we describe um, aromas or, or notes in wine as exotic fruits and spices, exotic for who? right? Right there, again, you can tell that the audience is not the global majority, because how weird would it be if I was talking to my sister, and rather than say mango or guava, I said exotic fruits. Yeah, that's a really good point. If you're from places where those fruits grow, they're not exotic to you, they're local. Correct. So by describing, you know, uh, a wine with uh, having exotic notes and, and, you know, like fruits and spices you're really speaking to a different audience it's no longer those who come from you know climates that grow those those fruits and and spices so it's it's thinking sure and in the reverse if you yeah if you're talking about you know the old wine language exotic fruit from an african culture would be Gooseberries and apples because you don't have those things there. Precisely, yes. That's a very interesting concept. Exotic for who? Exactly. And so those were kind of, you know, getting people to really think about the wine language and and who the audience are. And when you start to think like, you know, the goal is to, at least in my work, and it seems like in yours as well, um, and those who were at assemblage was that we wanted to diversify the wine industry. And so what does that look like? Part of that is in the language that we use. Right, we cannot continue to describe um, wine in a way that really only speaks to one audience and ignores the rest, because then we're just like I said, we're we're just stuck with this like boggle letters that we just we just and we continue to exclude half the world. Correct, and so that is what diversifying the wine industry looks like. And for me, it's diversifying the the language through global cuisine. I believe that if we wine professionals, especially were to expose our palates to different cuisines, right? Different fruits and plants from other parts of the world, that our wine language would increase simply by by trying other people's foods and, and getting to know them and learning from those cultures, that we would have new ways to talk about wine that was inclusive and that was more relatable to, um, uh, to the majority, rather than just speaking you know, specifically to one group of people. And then the other thing too is I don't want us to just learn about these cultures and then use... Their words to describe wine. I want to bring in people from different cultures, and so with the wine language, my goal is really to collaborate with cooks and chefs from different cuisine. Have them prepare food, whether a dish that is really well recognized in their culture or has some sort of meaning behind it. I want stories behind these foods and spices, and to get to know a little bit about people's culture as I'm as I'm talking to them. I'm learning about their cultures, and so I want that representation there and then be able to showcase wines that go with those foods. And there's sort of a few reasons for why I want to do it that way. A, that it's representation. And we know that representation matters, right, in any aspect of life. And so in wine, that means, you know, not always highlighting the same faces that we, that has been highlighted for so long. We need to see different faces because a lot of people drink wine. It's not just It's not just the few anymore, right? That's right. And we've got a whole new generation of wine drinkers coming and they don't want to see a bunch of old white men. No, they really don't. They, they're they not interested in that. Um, I don't really want to see a bunch of old white men. <laughs> and I've been in the wine industry for a long time. It gets boring real fast. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I want the representation there. But I, I also I want. Um, those who have never seen themselves in the wine industry to know and see their foods represented to see their own cultures represented and then for those of us like we said there are a lot of people who are interested in in a different way of talking about wine so millennials for example they are they love learning about other cultures and will will try foods from other cultures so now they will also have the knowledge to be able to pair, wine with foods from other cultures, right? They'll, they'll, they will actually have some guide in that as well. So there is a few different reasons for why I'm doing. Absolutely. And I think, Alice, that you're missing a trick here, If I if I can be so bold as to say, I think the wine linguist needs to be sponsored by some wine producers who want their wines taken to new cultures where they haven't been before. It's not just about the consumers learning, it's also about the producers learning how to present their wine. I agree. In other countries where other food is consumed, where people aren't used to pairing wine with food, I think that's a great opportunity for the entire sort of 360 degree wine sector, you know, educators and consumers and producers and importers and exporters and bringing in the chefs and, and the food growers as well. I think you're really onto something important. I mean, this is something obviously very near and dear to my heart, but I like the way that you're going about, I always say, make a long table and keep adding seats so that no one gets turned away. And I think you're really, really onto that. So I seriously, I'm so impressed and I wish you all the best with the wine linguist. Again, everyone who's listening, Alice has only been at this with the wine linguist for five months. So uh, we need to get out and support you and and find you on social media and follow what you're doing because I will be an avid follower to see what happens with you. But before I let you go, I just want to ask you my my typical uh, question when I'm talking to people in the wine world, especially those who are interested in sort of changing up the game. I know you've got an interesting palate and are used to interesting foods. So what's your favorite Italian wine and what would you drink it with? Yeah, so, you know, I really love trying different uh, Italian wines all the time. And one of the ones that I recently fell upon is by um, Casina Val del Prete. Uh, they're from Piedmont and it's this uh, this wine from them. is called Prete Rosso. And this one is it's made almost like in a rosé style so that it was it was a rosso that I that I was able to chill and it is freaking delicious um so I would I would love to pair that with sambusa which is also known as um samosa but in East Africa we call it sambusa (laughs) right all right well I what my sort of focus and and research these days is on Italian rosés. I'm I'm very passionate about Italian rosés, of which there are hundreds and hundreds that no one's ever heard of. So I'm going to go check this one out. Absolutely. It's delicious. Well, I'm so happy to speak to you today, Alice. Thank you so much for coming. And as I said, I wish you all well with the wine linguist and all great good fortune. I know that a lot of people are going to be so interested in what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me, Cynthia. This was really fun. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at International.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast, and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com.